Welcome to Gravity, a podcast on the environment and human rights issues from the local to the global. We live in an age of digital convenience in which a multitude of our daily tasks can be accomplished by the click of our fingers and which allows us to connect with our family and friends, acquaintances, even strangers around the world. We carry our whole lives in our pockets or on our wrists and while the world has opened up for us, we in turn have opened ourselves up to the world. It is the digital equivalent of Jeremy Bentham's Panopticon in which we are not imprisoned by bars but through constant surveillance. States are now employing technology as part of their arsenal against dissidents, imprisoning computers before people, to quote one Vietnamese activist. Reporters Without Borders has compiled an enemies of the internet list, counting China, Bahrain, Vietnam, Iran, and Syria as the worst offenders. Syria has an avowed electronic army that has hacked major Western papers and social media, as well as used technology to aid in the commission of atrocities and war crimes, including the targeted killing of war correspondent Marie Colvin in 2012. Western companies, including German Gamma, Italian Area and Hacking Team, French MSCs and American Blue Code and NetApp, have been selling their technology to states such as Syria that are known as pervasive human rights abusers. One avenue we can take is to restrict this technology, but we may chill innovation and we may prevent the benefit of this technology being used by activists. For instance, Facebook and Twitter were instrumental in the Arab Spring. Additionally, restricting technologies to these repressive regimes doesn't aid us against our own increasingly repressive government that is no stranger to spying. Before we revert back to typewriters, we should remember that technology is not inherently a repressive tool. Technology is merely a tool that aids particular intent, and if we restrict dictators, we also restrict activists, and at times the activists might need the technology more than their governments can utilise it against them. The answer may not be in restricting technology, but in restricting its use through the development of international law that delineates clear lines as to what is impermissible. With me today to discuss this issue is Scott Gilmore, a human rights attorney at the Center for Justice and Accountability. Scott represents victims of war crimes and torture in both civil and criminal actions and has pioneered strategies to litigate cyber surveillance of human rights activists and journalists. Scott is the leading attorney suing Syria in Colvin versus the Syrian Arab Republic for the targeted killing of war correspondent Marie Colvin in 2012, and Ethiopia for the cyber surveillance of an Ethiopian dissident in the United States in Doe versus the Federal Democratic Republic of Ethiopia. Welcome to Gravity, Scott. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Today, we live in an age of digital convenience. We can easily converse with our friends across the world. We can monitor our heart rate and see if we took enough steps today. We can easily locate people. We can order dinner via a click. But are we also living in a panopticon by doing that? What are the human rights implications of these convenient technologies that we use on a daily basis? Yeah, so this is one of the major themes of my work, which is really looking at um, what we might say the dual-use aspect of information and communications technology. You know, the designers talk about a quality of uh, any object they're designing called an affordance. An affordance is the idea that, uh, you know, a certain object or a certain tool uh, is intended for a certain use, but then it, of course, can afford multiple uses. So the classic example of that is a hammer. Uh, a designer will, uh, you know, craft a, hand or a hammer, design it so that it can be used for driving a nail. Uh, but, of course, uh, a user might have different affordances for it. So a hammer could be used to, to rob a bank. Um, the same issue comes up with all these forms of information communication technology, and in particular, their impact on human rights, because they can have a very positive impact. I mean, this is certainly one of the lessons 
um, discussed, uh, you know, emerging from the Arab Spring uprising throughout uh, 2011, where we really saw that in particular social media and online social networks um, was an incredibly powerful tool for organizing political movements. Now, of course, we've seen this in the United States as well, from, you know, the Occupy movement to Black Lives Matter to the sort of viral, you know, spread of the Tea Party. Um, all sides of the political spectrum have used this technology to organize in ways that are really, you know, positive First Amendment protected activities that really further what we think of as sort of a thriving community in a, in a democracy. But at the same time, um, those technologies can also, just like a hammer can afford robbing a bank, you know, Facebook, Twitter, all of this can afford a range of human rights violations. So, for example, the way that Facebook was used to organize demonstrations uh, in, in Cairo, around Tahrir Square, uh, in the early days of the Syrian uprising in March 2011, um, you know, Facebook, online social networks, it's a powerful tool for building political movements. At the same time, it could potentially be a tool used by a death squad to map out who, is, who are these activists, what are their connections to each other, and to actually generate a kill list. Um, and, and this is some of the use that we've seen just from the monitoring of open source communications. The more that an individual reveals about themselves online, uh, of course, the more it could be used for commercial purposes. Um, but it could also be used by governments. And this is particularly concerning when you're, you're, you're looking at repressive regimes. Um, as they enter moments of crisis, the first tool of convenience very often is monitoring people um, online because so much information is already out there. So when we're talking about repressive regimes and dual-use technology, now we know with dual-use, it, it really depends on the intent of the party that is using the technology. And when we talk about repressive regimes, for instance, we know the Electronic Frontier Foundation, Citizen, Citizen Lab, and uh, Reporters Without Borders have compiled you know, an enemies uh, of the internet state list. And uh, we have Iran, China, Vietnam, other countries on that list. Now, Western companies are selling technology to these regimes. We have Hacking Team, uh, Gamma International, and I, I believe uh, Blue Coat, an American company was implicated. How? What are the most egregious examples of Western companies selling technology to pervasive and known human rights ab abusers? So currently, uh, I, my focus is really on Syria, and I can, I can share a little bit about one particular example. Um, where in France, there's currently a criminal investigation uh, into a company um, uh, called Cosmos. Uh, Cosmos was part of what was a, a deal um, called the Asphodor Project. This was a deal between several Western tech firms and the regime of uh, Bashar al-Assad in Syria. Um, Area Spa, an Italian surveillance company, um, is accused of, of having set up a, a customized system for the inter uh, Syrian intelligence forces that was using technology from several different uh, Western tech firms. Uh, one of them was Cosmos in France, another one NetApp in the United States, um, and another Ultimaco in, um, in Germany. Uh, now, Cosmos is currently under investigation uh, in France for essentially aiding and abetting systematic torture and mass detention in Syria. Uh, and this is because the, the Cosmos technology that was provided to the Assad government is deep packet inspection, which um, is, you know, essentially in layman's terms, uh, offers a, a way for a, a government monitor to 
um, essentially tap into the flow of packets of, of digital data uh, and, and reassemble the packets to then actually observe. So, for example, an email being sent could be intercepted, the packets assembled so that the email could be read or even altered, and then um, disassembled and retransmitted. Um, that's, that, that's just one example. It's really one example out of many. Um, and I think the, you know, the law is really struggling with the best way to respond um, to tech companies that are providing their, their, their software or hardware uh, to abusive uh, governments. Um, you know, so one approach is, as in France, a criminal investigation. Of course, that's predicated on a theory of complicity, right? So they're not necessarily being prosecuted, or perhaps they could be prosecuted for violating sanctions or expert con uh, export controls. Um, but there, it's the what's being regulated is really how their technology was being used and whether they had reason to know um, that it was going to be used in that way. Um, so a similar issue of holding a tech firm accountable for the essentially the end use, if it knows the end use that its, that its technology is going to be used for, it could be held liable for that. Um, there was a lawsuit filed in the United States against Cisco. It was filed in the Northern District of California. Um, and the, the lawsuit was brought by uh, several uh, Falun Gong practitioners and other dissidents in China who had been detained and tortured. Uh, it turns out that Cisco had provided a customized uh, system, uh, customized hardware that was part of the sort of what we call the Great Firewall of China. This is part of the massive uh, effort by the Chinese government um, to regulate the flow of, of Internet traffic and be able to monitor it in particular. Um, what came out in the course of this lawsuit was that uh, Cisco had actually crafted marketing materials. Um, for the Chinese government that specifically identified that their technology could be useful to combat Falun Gong, um, that it could you know, specifically work uh, to facilitate the kind of religious persecution that we've seen in China. Um, I mean, and that was marketed as a, a positive feature uh, of, of this technology. Now, what does the law do about this? Well, unfortunately, um, you know, I like to say that the law is always a step behind technology, um, which can be a good thing because if the law over-regulates technology, then it can sort of chill innovation. But in this circumstance, um, you know, the U.S. courts are really grappling with to what extent U.S. law applies overseas uh, and, and to what extent does it apply to things like torture uh, committed in violation of international law but committed in China. Um, what nexus to the United States would be required for that type of case to be to be heard, for jurisdiction to be appropriate? And in the Cisco instance, the court held that the actual, you know, the, the unlawful conduct of torture happened entirely in China. And even if Cisco prepared these marketing materials, maybe even designed its system knowing that it could be used and would be used um, to persecute, uh, you know, religious practitioners, the court said that, that was just an insufficient nexus to the United States. Um, now, the problem is that that's running up against the reality where we live in a thoroughly, you know, globalized world uh, where technology is, is borderless. Um, and yet the law still operates under 20th century and sometimes even 19th century concepts of territorial limits. And so that's, I think, one of the main challenges in saying even if, you know, reporters and investigative groups do a wonderful job of exposing 
that Western technology um, is, is falling into the hands of abusive governments, um, the law isn't necessarily capable of responding in a way, which, which either means that, you know, it's up to litigators on behalf of victims to clarify the limits of jurisdiction through the courts, or it's up to Congress or other lawmakers to step in and try to clarify. I find it quite reprehensible that if they pandered to the human rights violations of China by uh, having explicit marketing materials to that effect that we couldn't get them on, say, an Alien Tort Claims Act liability. Okay, so if claims won't succeed, then maybe the only answer are export controls. I know that when I was working with export controls, that pretty much anything that had to do with aerodynamics was on the restricted dual-use items list. But I wonder whether the dual-use items list has caught up to the military potential of digital technologies. I mean, you could do way more damage conceivably with digital technologies than with conventional military equipment. For instance, you could hack into a water supply. And, you know, the other issue is that even if they have caught up, maybe that's an impediment to technological advancement. Maybe that's the chill factor that you were talking about. And also it might deny the technology to activists that really need it. So it's a really delicate policy question. I want, what is your opinion as to how to move forward? Yeah, so I do think, you know, the experience so far with trying to address in particular surveillance technologies. So things like deep packet inspection systems, um, some of the spyware that's commercially marketed to governments and it's marketed as lawful interception technology. Of course, you know, what makes it lawful is what the end user does with it. One of the problems with trying to regulate this through export controls has cropped up in discussions around the Wassenaar arrangement. Um, and without going into too much detail, you know, the Wassenaar arrangement is essentially an international agreement on setting up export controls, looking particularly at dual-use technologies, things that could you know, be used in weapon systems, um, as well as serving standard commercial purposes. Now, the problem is that regulating information technologies in this way, it's very hard to craft those types of restrictions in a way that wouldn't also restrict the ability for, for example, internet freedom researchers like Citizen Lab or Electronic Frontier Foundation or human rights activists or even journalists. Sometimes in order to do research in a country, it involves using uh, things like encrypted communication systems. Um, it could involve uh, essentially helping uh, activists in a regulated country acquire forms of technology like encryption or others that would enable them to safely you know, communicate with the outside world. And that gets into the dual-use challenge because the flow of these information technologies across borders can really facilitate you know, democracy promotion and human rights. And, and so I think that's sort of the danger with export controls is that, uh, again, it, it might over-regulate this area. Now, my personal view, uh, I'm speaking as someone who is a war crimes investigator and a human rights lawyer, my personal view is that uh, criminal accountability for complicity in atrocity crimes and uh, civil liability for complicity, again, um, are really the keys, I think, for setting the baseline, um, for showing what really is the red line that should not be crossed. Um, because once that clear sense of where the liabilities are, once that's established under law, um, then tech firms who, who 
by and large, are more interested in developing and innovating and, and sales. I mean, we're not talking about tech firms that are you know, intentionally out there trying to suppress dissent in China. That's not really their interest. But if the law was very clear on where the red line was, so for instance, knowing that your product is going to be sold to a government that is going to use it uh, to identify, arrest, torture, and likely kill people in violation of international law, that that itself would, would give rise to criminal and civil liability. And companies could then craft due diligence systems accordingly, right? They could set up their own internal monitoring. They could ensure compliance. They could uh, do all sorts of uh, verifications for who their buyers are, um, protect against the retransfer of a product that they might sell to make sure that it's not then transferred to a third party. I think the problem is that that red line really isn't clear. I mean, it seems clear as a, as a moral principle. It's somewhat clear if you look at, you know, going back to the Nuremberg cases, uh, dealing with the role of certain industrialists that were providing essentially material support uh, to, to the Nazi effort during World War II. I mean, there certainly is a precedent for saying that suppliers of tools and technology could be liable for the ways that their tools are used. But what we really need is for the law to set a clear red line, and then we can start organizing industry behavior around that. I think a clear red line should be marketing how you could use the technology to violate people's human rights. Um, so that, that was uh, an unfortunate decision, as you were discussing earlier. But w when we were discussing the problems also with Nexus to make a claim um, in the U.S. with uh, the technology that is used for human rights violations outside of the U.S. Now, we do know that uh, foreign regimes are actually using surveillance technologies right here on U.S. soil and they're monitoring, for instance, they're monitoring Ethiopian journalists and uh, hacking. Uh, China hacked the uh, whole Tibetan community at large. Uh, there have been uh, reports that Syria has done the same thing. Now, what are some of the most egregious examples that are happening on U.S. soil? And is there a way to uh, hold these governments accountable for what they're doing on U.S. soil, even despite the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act, which provides immunity to uh, foreign governments? Yeah. So, th I mean, this is uh, a whole other aspect that, of course, in recent years has has really come to prominence, um, and, and this is state-sponsored hacking. Um, now, of course, you know, we're seeing this right now around the election um, with serious uh, allegations made uh, by U.S. intelligence agencies that there is direct uh, Russian interference uh, in the U.S. election, um, uh, the hacking of uh, the Democratic National Committee, um, leaking of emails that, that, that you know, clearly were, were initially hacked, um, and, and that is just one in, as you pointed out, um, a number of incidents where foreign governments, for various purposes, um, have been uh, hacking into computer systems based in the United States. Um, and, and, and sometimes, some of these examples, Ethiopia is sort of a repeat player in this, where we've seen, um, you know, Ethiopia has developed a very robust domestic system of monitoring internet communications. Um, it really is a panopticon-style surveillance state. What's quite shocking about uh, Ethiopia's practice is that it also is reaching out across borders through the Internet to target the Ethiopian diaspora, and in particular uh, to uh, infect the computers of Ethiopian journalists, uh, pro-democracy and human rights activists, 
um, in Europe and in the United States. Uh, one particular case that I'm uh, working on is, is representing a, an Ethiopian-American, a U.S. citizen living in Silver Spring, Maryland, right outside of Washington, D.C., who discovered that uh, spyware had been installed on his home computer. And for months, um, this spyware was intercepting his, his communications, recording Skype calls, uh, monitoring all of his family's computer usage. Um, all of that happened on a home computer sitting in a living room in Maryland. And Citizen Lab, uh, a, a, a internet research organization in, in Toronto, published a report which essentially caught Ethiopia red-handed. The report outed that this particular spyware, um, FinSpy, uh, was uh, purchased by Ethiopia from Gamma Corporation. The spyware uh, reported back to a master server located in Ethiopia. It's an IP address affiliated with the um, state-owned uh, telecom uh, corporation there. So what happened was shortly after this report was published, uh, the spyware installed on uh, our client's computer in Maryland was deactivated, and it was supposed to uninstall and wipe itself clean, um, but it, it left traces. It was not necessarily just supposed to leave. Uh, and from those traces, uh, we were able to recover uh, proof that it had been communicating with the same master server responsible for uh, receiving back these intercepted communications identified in Citizens Lab's report. Um, and so we brought suits. Uh, we brought a lawsuit against the Ethiopian government. Now, normally, as you mentioned, under the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act, a foreign state is immune from the jurisdiction of a U.S. court. Um, but under that statute, there are several exceptions to that immunity. And one of those exceptions is when a foreign state, uh, through its agents, commits uh, a tortious act uh, and causes injury within the United States. Now, classically, I think the model for that, uh, what we call the tort exception, the model for the tort exception was, um, you know, a traffic accident in Washington, D.C., where an embassy driver might have hit a pedestrian. Um, but this exception was triggered most famously in a lawsuit filed around 1980, which involved the assassination of a former Chilean uh, diplomat, uh, Letelier, uh, in Washington, D.C., by the Chilean Pinochet regime. And the court held there that a, an intentional uh, assassination of a political dissident in U.S. territory, even if it was orchestrated from Chile, um, was a tort occurring in the United States. And the, and, and the Chilean government had no immunity uh, from a wrongful death claim based on that. So by analogy, uh, we are uh, alleging in, the, in this case that the spyware, which uh, just like the assassination in Latelier was orchestrated from Ethiopia, but the actual torts of wiretapping and invasion of privacy, those torts were entirely consummated in Maryland, in U.S. territory. Um, and so we are arguing and we are currently briefing the D.C. Circuit, who is considering an appeal on this issue. Um, we are briefing it and really putting forward the proposition that if U.S. citizens can't bring a, a, a civil suit against foreign states for this type of hacking, um, then this is really one of the very few protections we have against foreign state-sponsored hacking. If that immunity is going to be upheld, uh, if those claims are going to be considered as if they didn't actually occur in the United States because they involved um, you know, remotely controlled spyware, then we are going to be living in a world where U.S. citizens really have no legal recourse against foreign governments that are hacking them. And that has dramatic implications because we've seen hacking 
not just of you know Ethiopia to the Ethiopian diaspora. We've seen hacking of major U.S. newspapers. Um, we've seen hacking of Sony, which of course was attributed to the North Korea. Um, we see hacking of political figures. We see hacking of of, of now campaigns in, in in a presidential election. And so I think it's you know depending on how this case is decided, if the court comes down and finds that there really is no jurisdiction. Um, then I think this is something that Congress would have to consider very closely. I agree. It would be terrible that journalists and activists can have absolutely no protection while they're here uh, from state-sponsored hacking, which, uh, as you've mentioned, is just becoming the norm. So we've been talking about repressive regimes, but Western democracies are also being quite undemocratic themselves and uh, surveilling both their own journalists and foreign journalists. Now, what claims can be made against the U.S. government for its own surveillance, not only of its citizen journalists, but of foreign journalists abroad as well as, well as at home? Because what can we say to allegations uh, when we want to restrict dual-use technology to, say, China that levels hypocrisy against us? Mm-hmm. So I think the first response to that is that, um, it, I mean, it's it, it absolutely true. All governments are developing uh, online surveillance uh, systems, um, which is, I think, inevitable. I mean, it's it's an inevitable fact that the availability of information through these technologies um, is absolutely a resource for law enforcement and for national security. What that means, then, is that each government, and certainly under international human rights law, each government then must strike a balance uh, between the interests in, in national security and law enforcement and the protection of individual rights and, and civil liberties. And much of that protection is, you know, in our, certainly in the U.S. system, established through procedures, uh, through things like, um, you know, warrant requirements on a wiretap, which is now being, you know, a, a wiretap is not just the sort of classic bugging a phone. A wiretap now includes installing spyware on a computer to record someone's Skype calls. And we are seeing these issues being actively litigated uh, in the United States, where there, where there are civil liberties challenges, constitutional challenges, claims being brought um, alleging that uh, a, a warrant authorizing the installation of spyware was, was improper or in violation of, of the Fourth Amendment or the Wiretap Act. But for me, I think the key is that there should be an avenue to litigate these issues. There has to be access to the courts um, in order to make that civil liberty protection effective. And for me, I think that's really the distinction that I draw between some of the use of these surveillance technologies, which certainly can and has been abusive um, by uh, the U.S. or other governments, but at least there is a procedure being used to challenge them in the courts. Um, Now, people can debate how effective that is, But I think that draws a stark contrast with other countries. You know, I work in Syria, and obviously there is no way to bring any type of domestic challenge um, to the type of surveillance that the Syrian regime has been uh, deploying against its own population. The same goes for China. So I think that the, the fact that these surveillance technologies are being used, that is true across the board. Um, but whether they're being used within a regulatory framework that at least in principle should be operating to protect civil liberties, I think that's really the key question. Um, and that's where I think the activism and the push of public interest uh, uh, lawyers um, is really key because it, it, to make sure that those procedures are working, you have to be litigating those issues. So what claims can be formulated for non-U.S. persons for 
U.S. actions that aren't on U.S. soil? So that's an interesting challenge. And I, and I have to say, it's not one that I have uh, worked on. So I, I'm afraid I can probably only spitball a few ideas here. One issue with that is that many of the laws that regulate the use of surveillance by the United States, so for example, the Wiretap Act, the Wiretap Act does not apply overseas. Uh, it, it has been interpreted to the court so that it only regulates surveillance activities within U.S. territory. Um, so if, for example, a foreign national um, was wiretapped in their home country by the U.S. government, they would not be able to bring a claim against a U.S. official or the U.S. government under the Wiretap Act. And the way that this has tended to play out, now there might be avenues under international human rights law, you know, one notable example of this was in response to some of the Edward Snowden's revelations of the sort of mass um, dragnet-style surveillance, criminal complaints were filed in Germany um, against U.S. officials, uh, and the German federal prosecutor opened an inquest. Um, now, no charges have been brought, to my knowledge, um, but it is showing that um, there was a recognition there that at least prima facie unlawful surveillance by one state against citizens of a foreign state could give rise to criminal liability. And, you know, and, and this is something that I think, you know, that case was open. You know, I know that there has been much um, dialogue, bilateral and multilateral dialogue um, between European governments and the U.S. Uh, in terms of working out agreements um, on these types of cross-border surveillance. I think it really is an evolving field. Um, but I do think it would be interesting to see how litigation uh, in the courts of a foreign country involving some of U.S. overseas activities that might possibly contribute to sort of pushing forward that dialogue. But I think it's, you know, just the way the limitations on jurisdiction, chances are is something that would have to require the home country taking up the cause of its citizen. And if our government is acting in concert with the home country, then you know, no criminal proceedings would be filed, which would be a problem there. But that is something that we definitely have to have a look at. Now, you do a lot of work with Syria, and um, Syria has been quite vociferous in promoting its uh, electronic army and uh, well stating that it is fighting, um, you know, with hacking and, and, uh, and internet uh, technologies. So, so what has Syria been doing uh, with respect to uh, hacking of journalists and um, and, and surveillance over the internet and so forth. Yeah, so there are really a few related um, efforts uh, by, the, by the Syrian regime um, in, in terms of the use of information technology in suppressing the revolution of 2011 and in carrying out the civil war. Um, sort of the most visible face of that is what's called the Syrian Electronic Army. Um, and this was actually a, a creation of the Syrian uh, intelligence apparatus um, that launched the Syrian Electronic Army essentially um, to launch cyber attacks uh, targeting opposition websites. Um, now, a lot of this was more in the realm of uh, propaganda, putting out misinformation, or trying to shut down opposition websites. Um, so things like hacking you know, opposition Facebook pages, um, kind of vandalizing those pages with slogans of you know, pro-Assad slogans and things like that. Um, but the Syrian Electronic Army has also reportedly been engaged in, in more sinister things as well, such as 
you know, uh, monitoring uh, online forums, online social media pages to identify participants. And of course, this brings us back into this idea of if this is an arm being used to essentially out dissidents who then face, as we know, a situation where tens of thousands of Syrian activists have been uh, arbitrarily detained, many of them tortured, many of them killed. So there are reports that the Syrian Electronic Army is also part of this broader system of gathering intel on these activists so that they can be apprehended and really exterminated. Now, there is a cross-border component to this as well, which is the the Syrian Electronic Army has hacked several uh, news agencies, done DDoS attacks to shut down websites, uh, hacked and, and vandalized a, a website, major media organizations um, that have had their you know, web pages defaced, um, had false and misleading headlines posted, things like that. Um, and this is really shocking because it's, it's, so, it's connected to the sort of mass atrocities being committed in Syria. Um, in many ways, though, it's very similar in practice to what we've seen of these, you know, on the surface, they appear to be non-state actors, but really they are working in close coordination with foreign intelligence agencies. And it's something that we've seen in China and something we've seen coming out of Russia as well. Now, Syria has, um, part of its attack, as you were saying, has just been to uh, try and shut down Facebook pages and YouTube pages and so forth. And what I find interesting is that even though Assad has avowed that he has an electronic army and that uh, they are intentionally hacking Western media, they actually say on these Facebook pages that we love Assad and we're not connected with Assad and we're just Syrians that love our country. And it's actually to the point where, yes, we laugh about it because it just seems so preposterous um, and, and so fake. On the other hand, uh, when, you know, they're so polite about it in a way and um, like, ha- ha- what are the legal claims that we can make when these, I guess, just could be people that, you know, love their benevolent dictator? I mean, I'm just <laughs> to play devil's advocate. So in terms of legal claims or instances where activists or media organizations in the United States have been hacked, um, it is there are several laws that potentially apply and could have criminal as well as civil liability. Um, and in fact, the, the, the Department of Justice issued uh, indictments against several members of the Syrian Electronic Army. And I believe the charges there were for violations of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act which is one of the main kind of anti-hacking statutes in the United States. Um, Now, the CFAA, Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, also has a private right of action. So, you know, in theory, it would be possible for um, victims of this type of hacking to bring a civil suit. But it goes to the problem of how do you get jurisdiction over actors that are based in Syria? Um, Now, one possibility would be similar to the Ethiopia case that I filed, is to say, well, look, there is a clear, essentially, agency relationship between the Syrian Electronic Army uh, and the Assad government such that the Syrian state could be held liable for the actions of the Electronic Army. And the thing is that this, and I think this also touches, though, on another really kind of danger of information communication technologies in the hands of repressive regimes, which is that this is an incredible tool for misinformation. Um, you know, if we look at some of the, the kind of fog of war created by, for example, Russian activities in Ukrainian territory, um, the amount of disinformation pumped out 
um, through internet channels and reported, you know, quite frankly, through uh, news organizations affiliated with the Russian government, like Russia Today, where you you get what seems from the uh, from the outside superficially it might look like independent, disconnected sources reporting that, oh, there are no Russian forces inside Ukraine, despite the obvious when very clearly there are. And yet this has proven quite effective. It's quite effective in terms of domestic propaganda in Russia. It's proven effective for Syria. You know, nobody in the opposition is convinced by, um, you know, the claim of the Syrian Electronic Army that they are just patriotic Syrians. But there certainly are those in the pro-Assad camp uh, who who would say, look, this isn't this isn't the Syrian government hacking overseas. That's something that the United States does. So it, we shouldn't really underestimate that. Again, it goes back to dual use. The social media, viral marketing, these types of things can be very effective for pro-democracy movements, but also, I would say, even more effective than the sort of pre-internet mass media approach to propaganda that we saw. I mean, I think that today the Russian government has a more effective tools for propaganda than the Soviet Union had when it was limited to 20th century technology. Now, continuing with uh, Syria, uh, you recently filed suit on behalf of Marie Colvin's estate uh, against the Syrian Arab Republic for her extrajudicial and targeted killing. Uh, now, the Syrian government denies any involvement and blames it on the rebels. Now, can you tell us a little bit more about the circumstances of Marie Colvin's tragic death and the complaint that you filed? Yes, so Marie Colvin um, was a, a an American citizen uh, who for decades was one of the world's most foremost uh, well-regarded war correspondents uh, reporting for the Sunday Times of London. Um, and, you know, Marie had covered conflicts around the world uh, from, you know, notably Sri Lanka, where a... a a grenade that was thrown at her by government troops blinded her uh, in one eye uh, to covering in the Arab Spring, um, the uprising in Libya, uh, the Tahrir Square demonstrations. And Marie was really drawn to the events in Syria uh, throughout 2011. And in particular, um, what, what drew her in the early 2012 was the city of Homs. At the time, um, you know, Syria had had seen the outbreak of just mass demonstrations uh, throughout 2011, which uh, were, were met with increasing levels of violence from the government uh, in terms of opening fire on, on protesters, rounding up demonstrators, forcibly disappearing and torturing dissidents. And throughout 2011, we saw an escalation in the violence to the point where what initially was a peaceful opposition movement began seeing defectors from the army and, and others um, forming localized militias and defense committees and taking up arms. Um, by the beginning of 2012, the city of Homs became really the epicenter for this. And this was the first city where um, rebel groups, armed rebel groups, um, alongside the, the original nonviolent activists, um, had essentially seized entire neighborhoods. Uh, the several neighborhoods within the city were effectively under opposition control. And, and Homs was the first city where the Assad regime deployed the, the sort of starvation siege tactics that, that have now become commonplace. This was the first time where the you know, regime really deployed a full military response encircling these opposition neighborhoods, cutting them off, and systematically subjecting uh, civilian, you know, densely populated neighborhoods with, with a high density of civilians 
subjecting them to indiscriminate, um, at this point, artillery shelling. They weren't yet doing the sort of barrel bombing that came later. But so in February 2012, Marie saw that this type of siege of, of palms was, for her, analogous to, uh, to what was happening in the Balkans conflict in the 1990s. To her, this was the new siege of Sarajevo. Um, and her approach to war reporting was always to be there with the sort of innocent victims of war, to show how war affects civilians. Um, and in order to do that, she felt the only way to do it was to cross the siege lines and, and be inside the neighborhood to see what was actually happening. Um, she felt like that was the only way to kind of pierce the, you know, the sort of sandstorms of propaganda. And um, she was hosted in the city by a group of media activists who, you know, from, from early on in 2011, had been out recording the demonstrations, documenting the evolution of this protest movement, and using the Internet to uh, spread word to the world, uh, uploading photos and videos of demonstrations, um, making, you know, phone calls, uh, interviews with Al Jazeera and other major global networks, um, and also hosting foreign journalists so that they could see firsthand what was happening. Um, and so Marie... Uh, traveled with the British photographer Paul Conroy um, into the heart of Baba Amr, one of the key neighborhoods under siege, and um, stayed there with these media activists and uh, filed reports from inside the city. Um, and uh, unfortunately, on the, the night of February 21st, um, Marie made several broadcasts live uh, from the media center to CNN, BBC, and Channel 4, in which she exposed what she saw, which was that this was the wholesale slaughter of civilians. Uh, and she didn't pull any punches. Uh, and coming from someone of her prominence, um, who was there live inside the besieged area, um, that was quite a threat to the regime. And within hours after that broadcast, uh, the Syrian the military uh, fired concentrated rounds of shells that honed in on the media center in a, uh, a pattern of firing as, as bracketing, where essentially um, shells are fired to either sides of a coordinate and then um, a forward observer calls in an adjustment to then focus them in and essentially walk the shells onto their intended target. And that's precisely what happened. The sequence of shells landed and grew closer and closer and closer, drawing onto the media center until Marie Colvin was uh, killed by a direct hit, uh, along with uh, a French photographer, Remy Oschlick. Now, I, working on behalf of Marie's family, investigated this case with my organization, the Center for Justice and Accountability. And we discovered during the course of our investigation that uh, from numerous uh, inside sources, documents, and witnesses with personal knowledge, we discovered that this was no accident. This was no uh, random fire. This was not collateral damage that the Syrian government had meticulously for weeks been acting on intelligence tips that Marie and other Western reporters were traveling into Syria trying to cover the conflict uh, and that the Syrian intelligence deployed both um, satellite phone, cell phone interception devices and a network of on-the-ground informants to try to uh, identify the location of these journalists and in repeated occasions, uh, trying to target them with artillery fire. Because again, they couldn't get direct access to them because they were within the opposition-held areas. And on the night of February 21st, when Marie made her last broadcast, uh, the Syrian regime was able to intercept those broadcasts 
geolocate them and then confirm the location of that media center uh, with uh, reports from informants on the ground. And based on that, uh, pinpointing and, and corroborating all the different elements of intel, uh, the Syrian government launched a deliberate targeted attack against her. <laughs> that, I mean, that is just so deplorable. And uh, I mean, everything that we read about what the Syrian government is doing is just really no words. Um, to describe it, plenty of citizens as well as foreigners, including journalists and doctors, um, have been targeted by the Syrian government intentionally. Now, this is uh, such a violation of international law as well as the in international human rights law, as well as the Fourth Geneva Convention. Could you explicate a little bit more about how unarmed civilians, whether they're foreigners or citizens, are protected in combat? I, I can, absolutely. Um, and, and, you know, one thing I will note is that um, absolutely the Assad regime has been, you know, responsible for the lion's share of attacks on civilians and some of the mass atrocities that we've seen in Syria. Um, but it is worth noting as well, and this is very important for international investigators, um, that, you know, we've seen war crimes committed by uh, armed opposition forces and, and obviously, uh, we've seen, you know, war crimes, attacks on civilians, and even the genocide of, of the Yazidis um, committed by the Islamic State. Um, so the Syria conflict is, it is so rife with violations of international law that, um, I mean, this, this one horrific conflict is really posing a fundamental challenge to the international system um, because the violations are so apparent and the response has been entirely blocked by essentially the politics on the UN Security Council. Um, but what I can say about in terms of how international law protects civilians, one of the, the cornerstone principles of international humanitarian law, this is the law that governs the conduct of hostilities during, during an armed conflict. Civilians are protected in a number of ways. There are essentially three key principles, uh, one of which is distinction, which is the idea that any armed attack must distinguish between a lawful combatant or a military object which lawfully can be targeted. So under international law, if you're in an armed conflict, you can lawfully attack a combatant. Um, what you cannot do is intentionally direct an attack against a civilian or civilian population. I mean, that's sort of one of the key principles. And intentionally directing attacks against civilians is not just a violation of the Geneva Conventions or customary international law, it's also a war crime which has been prosecuted from the Nuremberg Tribunal to the Rwanda, the Yugoslavia Tribunals, and now the International Criminal Court. There is no doubt that not just the, you know, uh, a gunner who, who, who pulls the trigger, but their commanding officer, and indeed all the way up the chain to a head of state, can be responsible for um, the, the, the intentional targeting of civilians or a civilian population. And that's one of the key protections for journalists, and medical professionals. Um, such individuals qualify as civilians um, insofar as they are not directly participating in hostilities. And what that means is if we take a, a journalist, for example, um, a journalist who is on the ground uh, reporting uh, in, a, you know, from territory held by, let's say, a rebel faction, that journalist is still a civilian, even if they are reporting from the side of, a, of the rebels. And indeed, even if their message, uh, what they're reporting on, um, is 
you know, you might even say if it's sort of a pro-rebel message or if they're trying to report on how horrific the, you know, the other side's military campaign is. Governments very often would try to construe that as propaganda. But under international law, that doesn't constitute direct participation in hostilities. What could uh, constitute participating in hostilities is if a journalist were to take it a step further and actually, let's say, broadcast targeting information. So if a journalist were to say there are government forces deployed at this intersection, you know, rebel forces should direct fire at that building right now, that might be construed as uh, essentially participating in the sort of command and control infrastructure of, of a military. Those distinctions are incredibly important. Um, and, and, and that, you know, recognizing that distinction between a reporter who is objectively, you know, uh, publicizing uh, the facts on the ground versus one who is actually integrated into the command and control system. Um, that's a distinction that has been very significant in the context of war crimes. It's also something that we've seen in concepts of incitement to genocide, right? One of the most famous examples of journalists being implicated in the commission of atrocity crimes was the RTLM, which was a radio station in Rwanda. The RTLM was broadcasting not only hate speech, um, you know, derogatory speeches against the Tutsi population in Rwanda, but they went a step further and were actually broadcasting information about particular individuals at particular locations, which was really facilitating the targeting of those individuals. And that's kind of the step you know, where it's not merely hate speech, it's not mere propaganda, it's actually inciting or facilitating a, an atrocity crime. Um, so that, I mean, those are some of the, the important distinctions that, are, that have to be drawn in terms of journalists. Um, my fear, and I think what, what Marie Colvin and many journalists that work in war zones now feel, is that many governments do not respect that distinction at all. And in fact, many governments recognize that journalists exposing the reality of military operations can be strategically one of the greatest obstacles to those governments, which means that a journalist is basically a threat and increasingly becoming a target. Um, for Marie and, and many others who felt like maybe decades ago, you know, wearing a, a, a flak jacket that said press on it would protect you from being fired upon. Today, in many countries, and many war zones around the world, there's increasingly a sense that if you are a journalist, you are a prime target. Right, and, and Assad has even publicly said that there is a media war as well as you know, a physical war in Syria and that he intends to fight the media war, which is evidence they intentionally targeted foreign journalists. I don't believe they let foreign journalists in. I think Mary Colvin had to go in surreptitiously in order to be present in Syria. But... You know, as you were saying, we have to draw a distinction and, and reporting on what is happening. It's important for the whole world to understand what is happening. It, it, it's, and, and the press has been historically the avenue that has revealed atrocities. And, you know, if, if we take the extension that, okay, well, journalists are part of the media war and media war is uh, strategic and therefore, you know, all journalists are enemies. I mean, we could even say, well, doctors are enemies because they're curing and injured soldiers, which will then, you know, go back on the field. And even if they're, you know, looking after children in, you know, 10 years or 20 years, they'll be soldiers. But that is really the mentality that I think has, has underpinned the, the absolute brutality of, of the Assad regime's 
escalating crackdown on on the opposition in Syria. And I think what we're seeing now in Syria, and 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 at this point, not just by the Assad regime, but in the in the the bombing campaign led by the Russians, which you know really just harkens back to Guernica, right? This is the mass bombing. Um, by uh, you know Nazi Germany and supporting the the, the uh, Franco um, fa- fascists in in Spain, one of the first instances of sort of the mass bombing of civilian populations, immortalized by the Picasso painting. I mean, what we're seeing in in, in Aleppo in terms of this mass aerial bombardment of civilian areas, this intentional targeting of doctors, of hospitals, of of humanitarian uh, convoys, um, all of this, I think, in a way it's sort of thumbing their noses at the international system of justice and the protections of the Geneva Conventions and saying that, look, if if a major power and its proxies is willing to flout all of those rules and do so protected by a veto power on as a, as a permanent five member of the Security Council, then fundamentally our notions that we have a, an international system that's supposed to protect civilians I think it's fundamentally challenged, and I think it, what we're seeing is really a breakdown. <laughs> that is very unfortunate. Um, it, apart from international claims against uh, the Syrian government, in your complaint, you've specifically made uh, U.S. domestic law claims against the Syrian government. Now, before we were talking about the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act, but I understand you're using an exception to the act for terrorist actions. Is that correct? How are you formulating that claim? Yes, so one of the exceptions to immunity under the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act um, is when a, a designated state sponsor of terrorism uh, engages in the extrajudicial killing of, a, of an American national. Um, in that circumstance, the, you know, the victim's family members have the right to bring suit in a, in a U.S. court against that foreign state. Now, that's limited just to those states that are designated by the U.S. government as sponsors of terrorism. Um, and, and at this point, that's a, that's a short list of states. I think it's essentially down to uh, Iran, Syria, and uh, North Korea. Right, and therefore, you could use it against Syria. So you're using the unlawful death claim? The key claim there is under the statute, um, the, there, there is a right of action uh, for victims like Marie's family to, to bring a claim for what's called extrajudicial killing. Um, and, and this is essentially a killing without due process in violation of international law. And so it is, in a sense, it's a domestic claim because it's a statutory claim uh, under U.S. law, but it's also an international law claim because, um, as we allege in the complaint, the, this, this killing was unlawful both because there was no due process, right? I mean, if you look at the Syrian government's response, and, and President Assad even said so in an interview a week after we filed suit, he was asked directly about the killing of Marie Colvin. And he basically said she was responsible for everything that befell her because she entered the country illegally. Um, if that's the case, if the Syrian government was saying that Marie uh, was uh, in violation of Syrian law, then she should have been tried uh, and certainly could not have been executed uh, without being tried and convicted. Um, that's the sort of the, the nature of an extrajudicial killing is the sense where someone is summarily killed in violation of international law. And of course, international law is relevant here because there is an armed conflict going on. And in certain circumstances, a government can kill, lawfully kill combatants 
But Marie was not a combatant. She was a journalist, and journalists are protected by the Geneva Conventions and by custom uh, as a civilian. I hope that the case continues and that it is not dismissed because it is a very pivotal case uh, and very important, and Marie's family deserves justice. It's just uh, so unfortunate. She was such a courageous um, and fantastic journalist. But uh, moving on to um, more... (laughs) A positive uh, topic. We've been talking about human rights violations of digital surveillance and digital technologies and, and so forth. But you've mentioned before as well that the Arab Spring really relied on social media and that new technologies have aided activists as well as journalists. But how have they also aided um, human rights investigations and prosecutions? Yeah, so this is, um, I mean, this is really a a kind of an emerging field um, in in terms of using uh, information technology to document and prove international crimes. I can give a few examples of this. I mean, there is uh, a growing use of collecting what's called open source information, um, which which could be anything from, you know, gathering YouTube videos. Um, There are numerous YouTube videos. If we just look at the Syria conflict alone, where there are videos of military actions, there are videos of shots being fired on protesters. Um, there are horrific videos um, that actually document um, detainees being tortured. Uh, one of the most famous uh, now incidents uh, along these lines was a Syrian defector uh, who's been codenamed Caesar. Caesar was a military police photographer um, working for the Syrian government. Um, and, you know, initially was sort of a standard crime scene photographer. Uh, but after 2011, when the regime really started escalating its crackdown on protest, um, Caesar was tasked with heading up a unit of photographers whose job was to meticulously photograph and document the dead bodies coming out of the intelligence agency's detention centers. And, um, you know, these were bodies that showed, uh, many of them showed horrific signs of torture and starvation. Um, and uh, this brave individual defected um, and smuggled out some 55,000 digital photos um, that he was able to, you know, smuggle out essentially on thumb drives. Um, it's kind of amazing to think, you know, if this were 50 years ago, how would a defector smuggle out 55,000 photographs? Um, today, it can be done as something as small as a thumb drive hidden in a pocket. Um, so I think that's just you know one example of how um, the, the technology is, is enabling the documentation of mass atrocities and human rights abuses. Uh, one of the challenges um, is how to use it in court. Uh, and this is something that um, you know I think is being tackled on a few levels. One of them is is looking at uh, in international courts and domestic courts, you know, rules of admissibility um, and, and seeing, okay, we need to authenticate. Uh, we, in some cases, you know, an online video might, uh, might contain hearsay. Uh, and so you're sort of, you know, analyzing and litigating in court and establishing clear precedents on when these types of online sources of evidence um, are admissible, under what circumstances are they authenticated, and then using that case law to guide how they should be collected. So if you are an investigator, you need to have best practices. You need to know um, how do we best preserve this evidence. I think all of those issues are being worked out um, on an international and domestic level in numerous legal systems. 
Um, at the same time, there are things like satellite imagery and remote sensing technology um, where we you know, actually can get a bird's eye view over uh, war zones. And you know, in some cases, it been, has been able to establish patterns of targeting of civilian infrastructure and things like that. Um, and again, I think more and more we're going to see that this, you know, massive evidence that's being gathered in real time from the Syria conflict and, and uh, has happened in South Sudan and Darfur and Nigeria, we're going to see this used as evidence uh, in the coming years. Um, and again, this leads us to the same similar concerns about, you know, dual use technology. Satellite imagery certainly could be used by government actors to target civilians to launch uh, mass atrocities. It could be also be used by war crimes investigators to prosecute them. Right, that is the central problem, isn't it? It's all about intent and the party that's uh, using the technology. But if we limit technology, then as, as even you said before, we limit, it, it's a chill factor, we limit innovation and activists and uh, human rights attorneys are using the technology as well. So I, I think it's, something that we're going to have to craft on a policy level. I mean, we live in a global world and particularly with technology, there are no borders, really. We have to uh, craft it on an international level. I think that's, I think that's absolutely right. Um, and, I, and I also think that's why, again, setting that clear red line of showing there might be some gray area, but this line you cannot cross. If that could be established through an international criminal prosecution, which would send a very clear signal to companies around the world and governments around the world, I think it's sort of on those bases that we could start to build some sort of international consensus. It's very difficult to try to start from the gray area and find any clarity and agreement. But if we can all agree to first principles, that at least is a start. Well, thank you so much for your time, Scott. I've really appreciated your insight into this topic, and I trust our audience has as well. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. I hope you have found this podcast insightful and will join us next time as we explore more issues affecting our environment and human rights at home and around the world. For more materials on this issue, please go to our website, thegravity.fm.